0: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses so join me in the fun sign up now at chumbacasino.com.
3: no purchase necessary btw void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus
0: in the celebrated bronx zoo there's an elephant named happy happy is 47 years old And for the last 13 years, since her partner elephant, Sammy, died, she has lived alone.
3: She's not the only elephant there, but she has been kept in isolation. And so for the last 13 years, Happy, who science tells us to be an incredibly emotionally complex being, has been without the direct company of other elephants. My name is Kevin Schneider. I'm the executive director of the Non-Human Rights Project, and I'm based in New York City. He
0: says Happy is not Happy. Her situation sparked a protest outside the zoo in June 2019.
2: Free happy, let her go.
0: Free we'll hear more about the efforts to free Happy, but if they rest on the argument that elephants are emotionally complex, does science back that up? And if so, should that affect the way that we treat all animals? I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. The more we learn about non-human animals, the closer their emotional lives appear to resemble our own. In this episode, the ethical implications of living in a world with laughing rats, grieving chimpanzees, and empathetic elephants. It's Animals Like Us.
0: Our understanding of non-human animals has evolved considerably from the days, not that long ago, when animals were thought to be no more sentient and simple machines. Back then, scientists were urged to avoid terminology that reminded us of human behavior.
1: We were not allowed to talk about the emotions, and so we were supposed to describe everything in, in distant terms. So, if, for example, chimpanzees kiss each other. You have to call that mouse-to-mouth contact. Or if you tickle them and they laugh, you have to call that vocalized panting.
4: But now it's looking like emotions are pervasive throughout the animal kingdom and that the distance we deliberately put between us and other animals is getting harder to defend. In no relationship is that more true than the one that we share with our closest primate relatives, who we now know experience joy, sorrow, and even humor.
1: My name is Frans de Waal. I'm a primatologist and a biologist and a professor at Emory University.
0: There's a video on YouTube that uh, he'd like you to watch. It's of a chimpanzee named Mama, almost 60 years old, whom Dr. de Waal knew very well at the chimpanzee colony at the Burger Zoo in Arnhem in the Netherlands. Mama is dying. She's lying down, listless, and you'll see her refuse food and drink. And then her reaction when a human friend, biologist Jan van Hof, whom she hadn't seen in ages, enters her cage.
1: And uh, Mama, at first, did not know that he was there, did not notice, I believe, and then at some point she looked up and saw him, and she had a very big smile on her face and started uh, whimpering a little, and then at some point she embraced him, and he embraced her, and she patted him on the back in a way that chimpanzees also use to calm infants who are distressed. So she was calming him down instead of the other way around and I think that was partly because she must have noticed that he was a bit nervous of getting in there. For me that encounter was very touching for sure and many people were extremely touched by it. But for me the surprise was how surprised people were that she had such a human-like expression and such human-like behavior and her gestures and her embrace and so on. In the sense that we all know that chimpanzees are our closest relatives. So it's fairly logical that they have the same emotions and express them in a very similar way.
0: A link to that video is on our website. Franz Deval uses this story in his book, Mama's Last Hug, to frame the larger story that humans are not exceptional because we experience emotions. Now, while we still don't know exactly what animals feel because feelings we experience internally while emotions are what we exhibit, the understanding now emerging is that the emotional lives of animals are complex.
1: Yeah, the feeling part becomes speculative in the sense that emotions are always expressed in the body. If you are emotional, uh, your heart rate goes up, your blood pressure, your skin temperature may go up or down, uh, your voice changes, your expressions change. So the emotions are measurable in the body. As soon as we get to feelings, which are private states, it becomes tricky. Even with humans, it becomes tricky because you may tell me how you feel. You may say, I'm very happy. But how do I know that what you consider happy is like happiness for me? Uh, And with animals, it becomes very speculative. And so with animals close to us, my assumption is that the feelings are going to be very similar. So in chimpanzees and other primates, and maybe even in all the mammals like dogs and cats and so on. But as soon as you go more distant, you go to birds and lizards and fish I'm not sure that I know much about the feelings or that I can speculate about them.
4: I get the feeling from the interviews that you've given, the books that you've written, and your research, of course, about animals and and animal emotion, that there is a part of you that's weary of having to... You feel like you have to explain this to humans, that other animals, because humans are animals, also express and feel complex emotions.
1: Yeah, I think there's so much literature on animal emotions that is either negative in the sense that they are not relevant or who cares or we cannot study them or something like that negative or they try to simplify they say uh, yeah maybe animals have emotions but they only have a few and they're very simple and they never mix them and they never hesitate between them and stuff like that and and I think that's a very simplistic view I think uh, the emotional life of many animals certainly the large-brained ones such as dolphins and elephants and apes is very complex, just as complex, in my opinion, as ours. But um, I I keep telling people that, and uh, if you only have, let's say, your dog to work with, because most people, they have dogs and cats, but even in a dog, I would say the emotions are quite complex, or in a cat. Uh, And so even there, I think there's much more going on than people often assume. The the emotions that Mama
4: was displaying are... I hesitate to say remarkable because of what you just said about the diversity of emotions that animals can feel. But you suggested that mama was actually trying to console your colleague because she knew that she was sick and and that she was dying?
1: Oh, that I don't know. I don't know if the apes know about their own death, which is really, that's why when Jan van Hof said his goodbyes to her, it's not sure that she saw this as a goodbye because I'm not sure she was aware that she was going to die. And so that's a puzzle that I have, is that I do think the apes know when somebody else has died. And many animals, I think they react to the deaths of others. And they, they understand that it's an irreversible process. And they grieve sometimes, or they remain attached, or they become depressed. Whether they know that they themselves one day will die which we call the sense of mortality. Uh, That is unknown to me. She consoles Jan I think mostly because she must have seen from his behavior that he was a bit nervous uh, entering her night room, which normally we never do, which is a a total exception that he made there.
4: You just mentioned the sense of mortality uh, which humans have about themselves. And this idea in, in apes that you write about is that they may not have that, but they may have a sense of finality And that implies that they have some expectation about the future.
1: Yeah. So they may have a sense of finality uh, for other individuals, even other species for that matter, so they understand when something is dead. So so let me give you a little anecdote. This was a group of bonobos who had found a very poisonous snake in the forest. Um, This this is in Africa. They were very scared of it, and they were poking it with sticks and not getting too close to the snake until one uh, high-ranking female... Uh, grabbed the tail of the snake and hit it multiple times against the ground until it was dead then the snake was dead and all of a sudden the juveniles of the group instead of being so careful with the snake they picked it up and they draped it around their neck and they played with it and it was as if they knew exactly what had happened and that they knew that this was an irreversible process and that's what i mean with the sense of finality is that they have an understanding of death definitely in others Uh, and so whether they have that for themselves, that's, that's the big question.
4: Do chimpanzees exhibit the broad and the full complex spectrum of emotions that humans display, uh, things like jealousy or embarrassment?
1: Yeah, chimpanzees have all the expressions that we have, because um, it used to be thought that humans had more muscles in the face than other species, because we have more shades of emotions and we need to express all of them. Until about five years ago, people analyzed the faces of chimpanzees post-mortem and found that they have exactly the same number of muscles in the face as we do. And so they can, they can express just as many subt- subtleties of emotions as we do. And I think they have all of them. And, and so I mentioned in the book, of course, many examples. One that, that I think is really interesting is that they have a sense of humor because I describe laughing and their laugh expression and their laughing sounds, which typically they make only when they are playing and tickling and wrestling. and It's it's very physical. And actually, talking about physical, of, of the movies that chimpanzees like the most, slapstick movies are their favorites, which is also very physical humor. These
4: emotions and this catalog of facial expressions is not limited to primates, There are catalogs of animal signals. These are called uh, ethnograms, I believe. And we have them for other animals, including rats. Mm -hmm. Can you describe for us some of the facial expressions of, of a rat?
1: Well, it was always assumed that rats, the rodents in general, they have no facial expressions. And people made fun of that, that the rats don't have that. But now there is a study actually that was done in Switzerland where they put rats in a situation where they can sit in a box, and on one side of the box is a picture of a rat who is in a fearful situation, has just smelt a cat, and the other one is of a relaxed rat. Two pictures. And they sit close to the relaxed rat picture. So they make a distinction. They can see in the face of the rat that something bad happened to them.
4: These were just photographs of other rats, and they could tell, they could recognize in those photographs a rat that was fearful or a rat
1: that was relaxed. Yes, it's truly remarkable. So they, they, they may not have a whole lot of expressions. I don't know. This is fearful and maybe angry and maybe relaxed. But still, they have some facial expressions. And there are, of course, species also outside the primates that have a lot of them. So, for example, horses and zebras, the whole horse family, there has an enormous amount of expressions. And, and recently, people analyzed also the facial musculature of the horse. And that's um, very rich. And then there are, of course, the studies by uh, Jaak Panksepp, who uh, um, worked with rats all his life and did a lot of studies of the emotions in rats and especially how the emotions are subcortical. So deep in the brain, deep inside the brain. And he started doing things like tickling rats. And so he would tickle his rats and they produce um, supersonic sounds that you cannot hear. Um, but he, he had a machine to make them audible to us. And so you could hear these rats laughing in response to his tickling. And um, he also showed that they follow the hand. If you remove your hand, they keep following that hand, uh, showing that they really liked his activity. That, that's a preferred activity for them. So he did these studies on laughing rats, uh, because I sometimes talk about laughing chimps, which is really not much of a stretch, because the sounds are so similar to ours, and the face is so similar. But in rats, people had never assumed that. All of this work has moral implications. So there was a time, let's say previous century, where animals were stimulus response machines. And that's what the behaviorists wanted us to believe. Uh, They're called behaviorists because they said we should only look at behavior. We should not assume internal states like feelings and thoughts and mental processes. We should just talk about behavior. And they presented animals like machines. And and if that's the case, then you can do whatever you want with them. But now, if we're starting to think about animals as intelligent beings that have cognitive processes very similar to us, that have emotions and maybe feelings very similar to us, we cannot treat them any way we want. We, We have to have a bit more respect for them. In response
4: to the word anthropomorphism, um, you coined a word to suggest something that is more dangerous.
1: Anthropodenial.
4: Anthropodenial. What is anthropodenial?
1: Well, it's it's the opposite of anthropomorphism. So as soon as we say something smart about animals, we say... uh, They understand this or that. People say, don't be anthropomorphic. Or you say, my dog is jealous. They say, don't be anthropomorphic, meaning you should not compare them with with humans and use the same terminology. Anthropodenial is the opposite, is where people deny the connection between human and animal. They deny that we humans are animals. They want to sort of remove that connection. And anthropodenial is, in my opinion, a bigger problem than anthropomorphism, in the sense that more people are afflicted by it, especially in uh, in the university we have whole departments like anthropology philosophy parts of psychology that are in anthropodenial and that try to deny the connections and try to depict humans as something really special humans are really different from all the rest and for the biologists this is hard to swallow because we humans we we are animals we have brains very similar there's nothing in our brain that you don't find in a monkey brain our brain is bigger and, and so it is, that's an important observation. Our brain is bigger, so more powerful. That's an important part. But there's nothing new in our brain. And so we, we should not set up the, those differences. And I feel anthropodenial denial is the bigger problem of the two.
4: Franz de Waal, thank you so much for speaking with us. It was really a pleasure. You're welcome.
0: Franz de Waal is a primatologist, biologist, and professor at Emory University. And he's the author of Mama's Last Hug, one thing that comes up here is that, you know, the number of facial muscles is some some metric of how many different emotions you can display. But
4: I like thinking about rat facial expressions, and that rats can see fear in other rats, in images of other rats. Yes, and obviously they're tuned into something that's pretty subtle,
0: because you can look at a rat all day long and maybe not see any change in facial expression.
4: What did you think about the favorite genre of comedy for chimps? Yeah,
0: they prefer slapstick, right. They would love the Three Stooges, and maybe they did if they ever got exposed to them. So chimps love chumps, I guess you could say. If non-human animals can feel love, joy, sadness, fear, even exhibit a sense of humor, what implications does that have for how we treat them?
5: I'm Peter Singer. I'm professor of bioethics at Princeton University. What I do reject is the idea that simply being a member of the species Homo sapiens gives you a moral status that is higher than that of any non-human animal.
4: He weighs in next. It's Animals Like Us on Big Picture Science. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
0: When bioethicist Peter Singer wrote *Animal Liberation* in 1975, taking on animal suffering as a serious philosophical issue, it radically changed the conversation about animals. It awakened people to the cruelty of factory farming and promoted veganism as one solution to animal exploitation. The book changed what people ate, what they wore, and is credited with sparking the animal rights movement. Still, Peter Singer wishes the book had done more.
5: I hope that lots of people would read this book, that they would say, oh, what we're doing to animals is obviously wrong and we've got to stop supporting this so I'm going to stop eating animals and I'm going to tell my friends and then they're going to stop eating animals and and I thought we might really change that in the way that slavery got outlawed and we had a, a moral revolution against slavery. I thought the book just might trigger that kind of moral revolution against the exploitation of animals and really what it did is start a movement with a group of people who have that attitude but that remains a minority group in this society.
4: We're talking about the evidence for the complex emotional lives of other animals in this episode of Big Picture Science, and now the ethical ramifications of these discoveries. The early animal rights movement was built on the idea that we should prevent the physical suffering of animals. But how does the argument change when we add the possibility that they can experience emotional suffering and stress as well?
0: Peter Singer is often described as the world's most influential living philosopher, best known for his work on animal welfare and global poverty. His ethical arguments draw from a philosophy called utilitarianism, which you can think of as a kind of ethical pragmatism. The measure of ethical behavior is whether it's doing the greatest good by maximizing the happiness and minimizing the suffering of living beings. And while Peter Singer does not hold that human rights are exactly the same as animal rights, if an animal is capable of suffering, then we shouldn't discount its pain just because it belongs to a different species.
5: Certainly knowing about their emotional lives complicates our relationship with them. Because if we thought that it was only physical pain that we needed to avoid inflicting on them, then it would be much simpler as to questions about how we confine them or keep them, whether alone or with their species, that would be much simpler. We really wouldn't have to worry about that. We would be saying, oh, we're not inflicting physical pain on them. Yes, they're solitary and in a cage, but we've done enough. But I think once we recognize that they have emotional capacities, that they have emotional needs, then things change. And we can't just keep them solitary in a cage if they're a social animal. We can't keep them without stimulation and activity if they're an animal uh, who can become bored easily. So yeah, it makes a big difference.
4: Franz de talks about not just the ability of animals to experience joy and fear and sorrow, but that uh, chimpanzees, for example, will console each other and even console their human caretakers in times of sorrow. This suggests that these animals have complex emotions, in this case, empathy. So I'm wondering if the complexity of their emotional lives as well factors into the ethical debate.
5: I think when you get that level of complexity, of relationship, of understanding of the emotions of others, really a capacity to read other minds, really, I think it does start to change things. And we have to raise the question, why are we treating these non-human animals as if they were just things what's really differentiating humans from the non-human animals here so why is it that we attribute a lower moral status to them because it's starting to look as if in many respects they should be on the same footing as humans not on a markedly inferior footing
4: Well, I wonder then if you could describe for us the world as you would like to see it, perhaps the world where animals were treated fairly or ethically. What would that world look like?
5: Well, let's still focus for the moment on the great apes and other animals where we are aware of these complex emotional responses. I think we would include them within the sphere of beings who have a moral status that means that there are certain things that we should not do to them or that we should not do to them except in extraordinary circumstances. So you might call it the community of beings of equal moral status. That's how we think of humans. We think of humans as having equal moral status in a fundamental way. That means that we can't just use them for our ends. We have to respect their ends and, and how they want to live and what they want to do. So that would dramatically change the status of these non-human animals. We would treat them more like we treat other humans, perhaps humans with capacities that are not quite those of full normal adult humans. But, of course, there are other human beings who don't have those capacities, and we still recognize their moral status.
4: So this would mean uh, that chimpanzees, for example, would not be tested upon. um, But would they be kept in zoos? Would they be kept in captivity at all? Can you be specific?
5: Yes, Um, so fortunately we have already started to recognize that we shouldn't be testing on, on chimpanzees and that's not permitted except perhaps in very rare circumstances. Would we keep them in zoos? Well, not in zoos as such. If the idea of a zoo is that the animals are there for us humans to look at and to be entertained or amused by, then no, Um, just as we wouldn't do that with other groups of unusual human beings. So we shouldn't do that with great apes either. Now, unfortunately, we do have to continue to keep them in some form of captivity because there is no safe habitat that we can return them to And especially if they've already lived their lives in captivity, they no longer even have the skills to survive in their native habitat, even if there were such a place. So, yes, we have to keep them in captivity. Obviously, we also can't just leave them to roam the streets. Wouldn't be good for them or for us. But the captivity should be constructed to meet their interests, not to meet our interests. So we should have an environment in which they can live safely in a social group that's natural to their species. And if somehow you know humans can uh, occasionally observe them when they choose to come near to some boundary or we can observe them on CCTV or something like that, fine, that's not going to harm them. But the primary goal has to be to give them the best kind of life that we can.
4: Just out of curiosity, do you ever use the term inhumane, when you talk about the treatment of animals. It strikes me as an odd phrase because it suggests that the standard is how we treat other humans.
5: Yeah, I don't use inhumane really, uh, or or humane or inhumane, although I know there are organizations that are called things like the Humane League. But to me, uh, firstly it suggests that somehow treatment by humans is good, right? It's good to be humane to animals, but if humane derives from humans, then humans have typically been horrific to animals. So there's some sort of paradox in suggesting that it's somehow in our nature that we would be kind and not cruel to animals. So no, I don't like that phrase. And I think it's in a sense, it's also puts animals down. You know, the, the moral principle that I think should govern our relations with animals is one of equal consideration of similar interests. So we should be looking at what interests they have and where those interests are similar to ours. We should give them the same weight, the same consideration, the same attention that we would give to those interests if they were experienced by humans. So for example, if something is going to cause a similar amount of pain to a non-human animal and to a human, let's suppose it's a physical wound with a knife or it's a burn or something like that and let's suppose the skins are equally sensitive, we should think it just as bad to do that to an animal as we would think it to do that to a human. But I emphasize equal consideration of similar interests because interests do differ. And your listeners now have an interest in a fairly abstract discussion of of ethics. Chimpanzees don't have an interest in that kind of discussion. They can't follow that sort of discussion. So we should recognize that humans have some interests because of our high cognitive abilities that non-human animals don't. And there, things become different. There, we can't say equal consideration because they're different interests. But there are a lot of interests that are similar, and what France de and others who have studied non-human uh, animals, great apes and, and other primates, have shown is that this range of similar interests is not just the physical pain. It's not just the cuttings or the burnings. It is also the need to relate to others. It's also the need to have a suitable environment, social environment, and to feel positive emotions with others. What arguments do you find
4: get people to change the way they treat animals?
5: There are a lot of different arguments that get people to change, but a lot of people don't really know about factory farming or they don't know very much about it. They don't understand what it does to the animals. They don't understand that chickens have have needs too, that crowding 20,000 chickens into a single shed is contrary to the social needs of the chicken and that chickens normally learn individuals, they recognize the individuals around them and they they form a pecking order on the basis of their knowledge of those individuals. With twenty thousand birds in a shed, they can't possibly do that, so they're stressed. People don't know these things. They don't know that laying hens are in cages where they can't even stretch their wings or breeding sows might be confined in ways that they can't turn around or walk even a single step. So sometimes it's the facts that shake people up. Uh, And sometimes it's challenging them with the arguments and saying, you know, what is it that justifies us in doing these things to other beings?
4: I think 20 years ago or so, you would have argued that even a chicken, and you would still argue today, that a chicken or a mouse, animals that we would have considered dumb animals, for lack of a better description should be protected from unnecessary pain and you argued this before our understanding of the complexity of animal intelligence developed before our scientific understanding developed and i wonder to what degree the scientific discoveries have influenced your arguments or if the ethical argument could have been developed many years ago just by saying animals should not suffer
5: I think the the foundations of the ethical argument could have been and were developed many years ago, and they do depend on the idea that animals are conscious beings, that their lives can go well or badly for them, that they can suffer, and that they can enjoy their life. And, and that's enough, and I think we already knew that, certainly when I wrote Animal Liberation 44 years ago, we already knew that. The science that has come since has extended the ways in which animals' lives can go well or badly for them, and uh, extended our knowledge of what it takes to give them really satisfactory lives.
4: What animals are in your life on a daily basis? What animals do you come across?
5: Really, on a daily basis, I'm only interacting with other human beings. Um, I don't have any companion animals, and sometimes I've spent time sort of Cat sitting, my uh, one of my daughter's cats, and so I do spend a bit of time with cats from time to time. But I don't really consider myself an animal lover. I didn't get into this because I have strong uh, needs to be close to animals or to live with animals. I got into this because I learnt that the way we treat animals is simply one that can't ethically be justified.
4: Well, finally. Given what humans are doing to habitats and the role that humans are playing in driving species extinction, um, if you make the case that hurting one animal is a moral issue, or there are moral issues concerned with that, what are the moral ramifications then of driving an entire species to extinction?
5: So when you get on to questions about biodiversity and and driving species into extinction, you really move to a different moral arena, I think we can easily consider the wrongs we do to individual animals. And they as I've been saying, they're in some ways comparable to the wrongs we may do to other individual human beings. When we start to talk about driving a species into extinction, we're no longer talking about harming conscious individuals. What's different about driving a species into extinction is that there will never be any more of those particular individuals. And in that sense, the fact that the species gone extinct doesn't cause suffering uh, any more than killing an equivalent number of a more common species would. It's a loss for us and for our descendants who will never get to see those individuals again. It's almost like an act of vandalism to the planet, that here are these unique creatures who have taken millions and millions of years to evolve, and within... uh, a couple of hundred years of of our industrialization we get rid of them and that's something that really should make us stop and reflect on what we're doing to the planet and to all the creatures on it
4: peter singer thank you so much for speaking to us
5: thank you molly it's been a pleasure speaking to you
0: peter singer is a professor of bioethics at princeton university The relationship between Asian elephants and the humans who ride on their backs is ethically complicated, but could giving these elephants
4: jobs help ensure their survival? That's next. It's Animals Like Us on Big Picture Science.
0: Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch wherever you
3: get your podcasts.
0: Animal emotions. Do they exist? And the implications, if they do, on how we treat other creatures. That's what we're talking about here on Big Picture Science. Now we've heard about chimps But here's another intelligent species, elephants. And they can also pass the mirror test like the chimps. They can recognize themselves in a mirror. So they're intelligent, but they're also highly social. They form close bonds with family and other members of the herd. Love and grief are just some of the emotions in a pachyderm's repertoire. And woe to anyone standing in its path who doubts an elephant's ability to express fury.
4: Now, we heard the argument that keeping animals in zoos may be unethical, and so is releasing captive animals who lack the skills to survive in the wild. This suggests that the captivity of animals, in some cases, is a necessary compromise.
0: Humans have a long history working with Asian elephants. The strength and endurance of these lumbering leviathans Let's them navigate rocky terrain and monsoon-drenched swamps, kind of like a parent through a toy-strewn living room. And don't forget those talented trunks, which can act as hands, as straws, and as forklifts.
4: Transport animals are of special interest to geography professor Jacob Shell at Temple University, and his latest foray took him to the forested border region between Burma and northeast India, where elephants, paired with riders called mahouts, with teak logging.
0: That the elephants are captive at all and endure occasional cruelty when they're being trained, well, that may be enough for some to say they should be freed. But Dr. Shell says that overall, these elephants are actually treated well, more like employees free to do what they wish once the workday is done.
4: And the jobs may be necessary, because while humans are to blame for the loss of the elephant's lush jungle habitat, driving the remaining 40,000 wild Asian elephants into endangered status, partnering with humans may ensure their survival. Dr. Shell's book is Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants.
2: These aren't elephants that are doing tricks like in circuses. These aren't elephants who are there to entertain or charm tourists, though that can be a really positive thing under certain circumstances anyway. These elephants are doing forms of labor on behalf of human communities that are sort of oriented towards the forest and the resources of the forest in areas that are really difficult for wheeled motorized vehicles to get to. If you want to get food or uh, various other kinds of cargo, maybe medicine, maybe clothing, etc., across a very sort of difficult, maybe uh, forested mountain range, the way in which rivers sort of wind their way through rocky floodplains and the slightest rainfall will completely alter the course of the river and alter the arrangement of silt and sand and, and boulders. The elephants are really in their element moving across this environment. They can wade, they can swim, they can swim with passengers on their backs, they can swim with motorcycles on their backs, they can make use of their trunk to test the river fathoms for unsteady boulders and things like that. So it's almost like they're five-legged, like that's how much they use their trunks in order to get across these kinds of landscapes.
0: Well, unlike machinery, they've had millions of years to, uh, if you will, be engineered by evolution to to be appropriate for this kind of a landscape. Let, let's uh, consider the day in the life of a working elephant. I mean, yeah, they wake up or whatever. I, I don't know if they wake up, but uh, they they get retrieved by the mahouts. Who give them a bath. That, that's great. Wake up in the morning and get a bath. And then, uh-huh. uh, you know, they work uh, during the day, and then they're released into the surrounding forests in the afternoons and evening. Um, why is that? I mean, why don't they just time up to a hitching post, as uh, they always do in the Western movies, at least with horses?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And that that's actually really crucial to um, another thing that drew me into the topic and persuaded me as I was doing the research that these communities that do this might have a lot of insight into how to conserve and even revive this species over the rest of the century. They're letting their work elephants into the surrounding forest each night, in part because each elephant requires so much food over the course of the day. That could be bamboo leaves or vines or creepers or things like that. So much food over the course of the day, many, many hundreds of pounds, that for a human to gather all the food per elephant becomes an inefficient, source of extra labor to have to add into just keeping the elephant around. It's not economically worth it. It makes more sense to release the elephant into the forest each night and let the elephant find his or her own food, in addition to which the elephant will tend to mate with wild elephant herds that are passing through the area, or for that matter, with each other. And this is really essential for how this particular human-animal relationship has been able to sustain itself. Elephants are very kind of stubbornly hesitant maters or breeders, especially if they're inside of environments that they sense are not in their control. They've been enclosed in some way, maybe inside of a zoo or even inside of a tourist park. They tend not to like to mate with each other. By contrast, when they're released into the sort of open forest on a nightly basis this way, the females tend to get pregnant. The males are presumably making some of the wild female elephants pregnant, and so in this way, it's been suggested by more biologically oriented scientists than myself that work elephants actually reproduce at somewhat over twice the rate of zoo elephants. To give you an idea of how important that is from the standpoint of conserving the Asian elephant species. Now. Jacob,
0: these elephants are obviously good at carrying teak timbers around, putting them in trucks or wherever, but they're more than just oversized mules. They show ingenuity, and to begin with, well, they can understand language. The mahouts give them instructions. Uh, I think you write that they have a vocabulary that's somewhere between 35 and 100 words, but it could be 35 or 100 words in various languages, and they can learn Mm -hmm. several of them.
2: Yeah, I mean, they're extraordinarily uh, intelligent animals. And what's so remarkable with Asian elephants is that they're able to do these very cognitively demanding, complex types of work, complex works that really oftentimes require real kind of problem-solving skills. They're capable of doing it without having been selectively bred to do it. I mean, there's just this one extraordinary story from during World War II when both the Allies and also the Japanese, they were both in Burma. It was a major theater of the war, and they were both making pretty extensive use of elephant-based labor for transportation and for logging and for bridge building and things like that. And one particular elephant, this is on the British side, he was being asked to push a big log onto a bridge pylon, and the log kept slipping off of his tusks, either slipping backwards onto his mahout, which the elephant wasn't happy about that because the elephant doesn't want the mahout to get hurt, or slipping forwards and and then hurting people who are uh, on the pylon. So all the people on the scene were completely at a loss for like, how to proceed. Like, what do we do? They weren't really accustomed to the requirement of being asked to build wartime bridges in the middle of the jungle before. And it was actually the elephant, according to the person who recorded this incident, it was the elephant who figured out what to do. And the elephant grabbed a sturdy club-shaped bit of wood with his trunk and then wedged it diagonally between his two tusks. So it's like a diagonal safety lock or stopgap, And in this way, having sort of tied the club between his tusks with his trunk, Uh, was able to create a really sturdy way of preventing the log from slipping either backwards or forwards. Just an extraordinary story of the uh, the elephant's cognitive intelligence.
0: Well, then finally, Jacob, the Non-Human Rights Project. It's the largest group in the U.S. that's fighting to recognize the rights of animals. Fighting for the liberty of animals is nothing new, but has your experience with elephants changed your opinion of these endeavors?
2: I would say that in a lot of cases it hasn't changed my opinion. I would say that with the example of something like circus elephants, where I think there's a lot of validity in these arguments that are being made about how elephants in a circus have rights, uh, they're being held in a particular captive environment uh, against their will, and they ought to be released into some sort of situation where they'd have like a chunk of forest that they could wander around and sort of enjoy their lives somewhat more. And I think it, there's a lot of validity to those arguments. I do get a little bit concerned that sometimes the way those arguments are being made serve to somewhat demonize some elephant tenders in these circuses who have been working with elephants their whole lives, are close to their elephants. You know, probably it's a very complex relationship, and who have a lot of uniquely valuable knowledge about the elephants that really shouldn't be marginalized. And so kind of a demonizing rhetoric, I think, can sometimes have the uh, unfortunate consequence of serving to do that. But on the whole, the idea of animal rights is one that I am certainly supportive of. But I'm also supportive of the idea that endangered animal species, and the Asian elephants are certainly an example of that. There's as few as 40,000 left in the world, have a right to continue to exist past the end of this century. And I think that these communities that are trying to work with elephants in order to generate forms of economic value that help to keep the forest in place offer a lot of really valuable insights for how to do that. The Asian elephants in particular ultimately need to have the forest in order to survive this particular era that we're in they don't have the forest, I think it's very doubtful that they'll be able to survive. Like if they're narrowly uh, zoo animals or park animals, like in an enclosed park compound, and they don't have kind of a more open forest environment in which to seek out mates and, and things like that, I think it's very doubtful that they'll be able to survive as a species. And they have a right to do that, in my view. Jacob Shell, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thank you. Delighted to have uh, talked with you.
4: Jacob Schell is a professor of geography at Temple University, and he is the author of Giants of the Monsoon Forest, Living and Working with Elephants.
0: After everything we've learned, we now return to the case of Happy, the Asian elephant in the Bronx Zoo who has lived the last 13 years in isolation. Taking up her case, that is her legal case, is the Non-Human Rights Project based in New York, its executive director making the rounds in both the courts and in public protests is Kevin Schneider.
3: The Non-Human Rights Project is an American nonprofit civil rights organization whose mission is to change the legal status of at least some non-human animals from things who cannot possess any rights at all to persons who can possess at least one right. Happy has been at the Bronx Zoo for almost 40 years, and for the last 13 of those years she's been completely alone. Uh, The Non-Human Rights Project filed a historic lawsuit last year demanding that the Bronx Zoo release Happy to a sanctuary. Uh, We argued under the writ of habeas corpus, which is an ancient legal device uh, that has historically been used to demand liberty for detained persons, of course, is the rub. And part of our argument is the science of the cognition, what we now know about elephants and just how much they suffer without the company of their own kind. We know them to be tremendously social beings. And so for an elephant like Happy, this is akin to keeping a human in solitary confinement. And so that's what our uh, lawsuit and now public protests and other efforts are all about. So
0: so this will be decided by the judge. I mean, this is obviously not a, a jury trial case.
3: That's right. This will be decided by a judge.
0: If I were to go see Happy at the Bronx Zoo, I mean, does she just sort of sit in a corner? You know, what would her affect
3: be? So let's bear in mind that this is the Northeast. So about for about half of the year, she's kept inside a small industrial barn. But for those times when she is allowed outside, there are wires surrounding about this acre patch. There are a number of plastic trees and a small pit of water like a kiddie pool. And indeed, she'll spend a lot of time, when you can see her as you go by on the monorail, staring outward past the gate and swaying in a way that experts on elephant behavior will tell you is a sign of what's called stereotypic behavior and a sign that elephants are indeed suffering The impacts of captivity.
0: And and if she were moved to a sanctuary, first, where would that be and what would her life be like there?
3: There are two sanctuaries that are up and running for elephants in the United States right now. One is the Elephant Sanctuary in Tennessee. The other is the Performing Animal Welfare Society in Northern California. And at both of these locations, she would have drastically more space than she has now. But the most important thing for us is that she would have some ability to make free choices about how she spends her day, which now she's completely deprived of.
0: And, and what about the social aspects?
3: So uh, after very you know, careful consideration to make sure that she could uh, get along with the other elephants at the sanctuary, which is a very long process, she would be slowly reintroduced. And there are many examples of elephants like Happy being sent to sanctuary and then being reintegrated with two or three or sometimes more other rescued elephants and building some kind of new family.
0: What about people who would point to you and say, look, the Bronx Zoo says that, uh, you know, their folks, their, their staff, veterinarians, whatever, are all treating Happy well, and she's not
3: languishing. So that really confuses the issue here. We're not talking about Happy's welfare. We never allege that anyone is treating her badly or withholding food or anything like that. The problem is that the Bronx Zoo and other institutions like it have an antiquated worldview that still sees elephants as displays and really completely fails to acknowledge and take into consideration their emotional and cognitive needs.
0: Is it true, Kevin, that happy really was the first elephant to show self-recognition. I mean, self-recognition is a trait that uh, simians, you know, chimpanzees and so forth have, and dolphins. But uh, I don't know that any other critters
3: have shown that. That is true. Happy was the first elephant uh, in the world to pass the mirror self-recognition test. And indeed, that is part of the legal arguments that we make on her behalf.
0: So Kevin, what's next? So Happy's
3: legal case, we're just awaiting word from the Bronx Trial Court as to how that will move forward. But in the meantime, we're planning additional rallies at the Bronx Zoo. We're calling on people to sign our action alert and demand directly from the Bronx Zoo that they send Happy to Sanctuary. And we're also planning for other efforts that uh, we invite the public to really begin getting involved with in a way that we haven't been able to do yet because we've just been in court.
0: All right. Kevin Schneider, thank you very much.
3: Thank you.
4: Kevin Schneider is the executive director of the Non-Human Rights Project. And at the time of our conversation with him, they had, I don't know that you knew this, Seth, they had collected more than 800,000 signatures to their petition to free happy. And those are signatures from all over the world.
0: Well, that's an impressive total, I have to say. But of course, elephants are also impressive. So we began with the question of, do animals really have emotions? Has that been demonstrated? Well, clearly it has. But the question then becomes, how should that, you know, affect the way we treat these animals?:
4: Certainly that applies to the overcrowding and miserable conditions in some factory farms. But then it gets complicated, doesn't it, in situations where freeing an animal from captivity may endanger its life because it no longer has the skills to live in the wild. Or in the case of the Asian elephants, the wild is going away and employing the elephants to do tasks with humans may help ensure their survival. You know, in the 18th century you had the enlightenment,
0: which improved the treatment of other humans, if you will, that all humans had certain basic rights. And and maybe what we're entering now is a kind of an enlightenment for other species on this planet where we will, in fact, assume that they will be treated well, and that will be something that we will look back in the distant future and say, well, of course they should have been treating animals better.
4: Thank you to all the human animals who made this show possible, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, david and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life including the possibility of ancient lake beds on Mars. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak, and I occasionally do get emotional. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your
4: ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science that's called Animals Like Us. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org, and our website also has links to the guests you heard.
0: You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? And you can make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the Bye Pi Side Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Radio.com, or Himalaya.